Welcome to the Modern Carnivore Podcast, a guide for those interested in hearing more about hunting, fishing, and other paths to eating more responsibly. Now, here's your host, Mark Norquist. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this new episode of the Modern Carnivore Podcast. Today, I am joined by Jenny Lai and Alex Kim. Uh, and we're going to be talking about a lot of different things for both of them as new hunters, new adult onset hunters. But specifically, we're addressing the challenges related to issues of diversity and how that adds an additional layer of complexity if you're a person of color on top of all of the other challenges of getting into the outdoors. Jenny is Vietnamese-Canadian. And Alex is a Korean-American. And so bringing that to the table in addition to the challenges they've had in the opportunities to get into hunting and fishing as of late, I think it's a really important story for us to listen to. This actually was recorded, this, this podcast was recorded in the spring of 2019 at the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers Rendezvous in Boise, Idaho. And um, I guess who would have guessed we'd see us where we're at right now with the global response to the killing of George Floyd um, and what we've seen as of late as, as that response. You know, that happened right here in my hometown of Minneapolis-St. Paul, right here in the Twin Cities. And so I think it's important that everyone has these difficult conversations. Uh, I'd like to share with you the mission of Modern Carnivore. This is on our website. It's on my email signature line and really is the foundation for everything we do in the space of, of hunting, fishing, in the outdoors. And it is to awaken the hunter that lives inside every person. We introduce people to hunting, fishing, and foraging to promote a deeper understanding of wild places and our connection to them. We do this by, and this is the important part, respecting each person's background and welcoming them into a community that values conservation, access to public lands, fair chase of fish and game, and the enjoyment of real food. So, if you're already part of the outdoor community today, I would encourage you to initiate the sometimes difficult conversations about diversity in places like the outdoors. And if you're looking to get into the outdoors and you're a person of color or anyone who feels uncomfortable like it's not the place for you to fit in, please be bold in sharing your concerns and know that there are many people in the outdoor community that are working to knock down barriers to anyone, including of people of color, different genders and orientation, or financial situation, and working to give everybody equal opportunity to this wonderful lifestyle. I hope you enjoy today's conversation with Alex Kim and Jenny Lai. Okay, we are here in Boise, Idaho, and I'm joined today by a couple uh, couple people, and I'd like them to introduce themselves. Hi, Mark. Thank you for having me on. My name is Jenny Lai, and I 
am so excited to be in Boise for the first time ever for the rendezvous. Did I kind of let the cat out of the bag and I wasn't supposed, you were supposed to say we're at the rendezvous? Not at all. That's <laughs> great that you said it. We are. We are at the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers Rendezvous, the annual rendezvous. Uh, yeah, your first one. This is my first one. So I have been having a blast. Too much fun. <laughs> that is a place to have too much fun. Absolutely. Seems to be the theme. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Mark, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm Alex Kim. I am, uh, yeah, this is my fourth rendezvous. Mine so, too, yeah. We've yeah. been to the same number. Exactly. I, I don't think we I don't know if we've met before or not. I like don't we know were either. talking about. Yeah. yeah. I think we've we sat in the same room together and <laughs> I'm sure we have. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. But now here we are. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, what what I'd like to do is is uh, have the two of you just sort of share a little bit about your backgrounds, who you are and so, you know, Jenny, um and what's your story? You are you live in Vancouver, correct? Yep, born and raised in Va- beautiful British Columbia. Never really left the city until um, last year. I uh, decided I was gonna hunt. I, I love food. I would say I love to eat more than the average person. <laughs> yeah, and I was like, it only made sense. I take my obsession to the next level and learn how to hunt. And then when I got into it, I was just so shocked at how kind the community was and how everybody was just so open and encouraging. And that's what kind of started a Chasing Food Club. Yeah. And yeah. so, Mark, it aligns perfectly with Modern Carnivore of just kind of showing people the side of getting reconnected with your food and the sense of community and it's almost spirituality. Like, it's amazing. Totally. And um, yeah, that's, that's a little. Great. That's a little bit about me. And I am a late hunter, obviously, because I when, just started. So when did you When did you start? Just last year, hunting? Just pretty much last year. It's been a year now. Wow. What was your first hunt? What did you uh, What did you do? Well, I stumbled around for spring bear. Yeah. Saw one about thirty yards away and got scared. <laughs> that was my first hunt. <laughs> Well, did, was it enjoyable, though? Obviously, you've stayed with it, or hunting in general. I sure did. Yeah. I sure did. Um, I get to be one of the storytellers this year at the Rendezvous, and I'm going to be sharing the actual first successful hunt. Um, I didn't get to shoot the animal, but I was sure a good pack meal, and uh, that was caribou in dead center British Columbia. Wow. Oh, my gosh. That would be wonderful. I... Uh... A caribou hunt is is one of those things that's on my list. I'm actually going to go f- fishing in a few weeks' time up in Woodland Caribou Provincial Park. There you go, north of Minnesota, and there are caribou. Up there. I've never seen caribou in the wild, and I'm pretty pretty stoked to hopefully see one. Mm-hmm. Are there still caribou in? Yeah, there are. That's that's what I'm told. So we'll follow up after, and I'll let you know if I've if I've seen any. But they're 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 saying that that there are caribou over there. Okay. That would be exciting to hear. I know I've been writing lots of letters to our government talking about our steady decline and almost close to extinction in certain areas. And yeah. um, so that's, that's truly a passion of mine, and that's why we're all here, I guess. Yeah. yeah, yeah, conservation, a big part of hunting, which a lot of people don't get. And that's you know one of the things that, that I try to keep beating the drum on with the broader population is, is getting that connection understood. That, that they go together, which is a tough thing for people to sometimes understand. Um, you know, I, so I'm going to give a presentation tomorrow, and one of the slides I have in there was, you know, <clears throat> we're all taught from from a young age, you know, 
if you if you start this phrase, let's see, we'll all practice it here to see if it works with you guys. Complete the sentence. If you love something, go after it. <laughs> that that that's what that's what we say. So people hear a lot of times. If you love something, set it free. You know, mm. let go. Don't don't grip too tight, which is a good philosophical perspective. But as hunters, we say if you love something go kill it and then eat it which is a hard thing for people to sometimes to get their head around i think and um and so yeah i mean relative to caribou is as one example of of the need to understand what's going on why why yeah. are they in, in such imperiled uh, state so i just want to circle back and say the herd i hunted was healthy <laughs> <laughs> and so, <laughs> that's a very to... good point because, like, that's an example of where people wouldn't wouldn't understand what you're yep. saying. So, yes, thank you for yep. making that Checked clarification. Out. <laughs> Circling back to that, yeah. So, Alex, where did you uh, grow up? So, I grew up in Maryland, and okay. um, I ended up in Montana five and a half years ago. And kind of right off the bat, I wanted to get outside. I had a huge, huge interest in it. Um, I grew up bass fishing in Maryland, and so I was looking for bass and really just kind of enjoying Montana and being able to go check out the different lakes that were around. And, um, and then I ran into, uh, Sam Lundgren, who is, uh, who was our, our editor, our journal editor at Backcountry Hunters and Anglers. And, um, we became friends and then I had an internship and honestly, that was my, the, the door that opened for me, um, that kind of showed me all about hunting, fishing. Um, yeah, I mean, this organization, um, really just kind of showed me the whole ropes um, and the people within it, you know, and I, the mentors that I've had, the friends that have taken the time to take me out. I mean, that has really, um, helped kind of form who I am as a, as a hunter and a fisherman and yeah. And it's, it's exciting to kind of progress in that sense as well. Um, like Jenny, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't get to hunt or really fish too much. And so coming out here and really kind of pursuing it as a, as a, the lifestyle has definitely been um, a great benefit in my life. What was your first hunt? My first hunt was, I guess it was for, for ducks. Yeah, it was cold. <laughs> I was sitting in, in waders, and it was really cold. It was dreary outside, and I wondered, so you guys just sit here and wait, wait for ducks because it's freezing. <laughs> so tell me about that because I, I, I've gone back and forth on the idea of duck hunting as a first hunt. And, and and for that reason, like you just described, of, of the part that I, I get concerned about is the overwhelming nature of, like, all the gear you've got to have. Mm-hmm. And then you're sitting in a, a cold blind, oftentimes rainy, just, you know, nasty weather, just sitting there, like you said. Now, on the flip side, the up, upside of it is, is it's social. You're there and you can just chat and you don't have to be super quiet and and uh, and so there's the upside. But I mean, would you say it was a it was a good first experience? You think it's a what's your thoughts on it as a yeah. as first time? I thought it was a great first hunt and I also felt like it it was um, it was paced and so I got to really kind of take in the different elements of a of a duck hunt. You know, I was right next to a river, so like understanding the water, mm-hmm. you know, the weather. Um, the calling in, I mean, there was just all these different, different aspects of it. And, um, each one doesn't happen all at one time cause you're sitting there. Right. And so you get time to really observe and kind of connect with where you are and what's going on. And so I thought it was awesome to be able to really just take time and kind of consume the other things that were going on. Um, you know, as well as, as waiting for ducks to come in. 
So yeah, yeah it, it definitely built a greater connection for me right off the bat being my first hunt. I think I just gained that appreciation or, or I'm still gaining, but I think that first hunt really, really helped me to kind of see the appreciation for, um, the hunt as a whole thing. You know, it's like, there's all these different aspects that, that come together that make this, that, that, you know, that hunt a, a really cool experience. And I think, you know, um, hunting an animal and, and that part about actually, you know, harvesting a, a, a duck that was beautiful, but the whole, everything that went into that, you know, I don't think it would have been the same without it. So it's definitely great. Totally. And, you know, and that's, that's one of the things that, that I get concerned about sometimes is, is, um, that full experience, the connectivity of all those little things is truly what it is. And and it's hard to convey that to somebody who hasn't, who hasn't been part of it. And, and I think sometimes we oversimplify the hunting experience down to a moment, which is the pull of the trigger or the release of the, of the arrow, which is the high point in that full journey, but it's just one moment. And, and, and I think we sometimes put maybe too much emphasis on that when it's that whole, that whole connection there. So, um, so Jenny, you live in Vancouver, uh, so a big urban area, but you're getting out hunting now. So you must have a big truck that you get out in the, out in the, the mountains with out in the outback. Interesting. You brought that up, Mark. I, um, start out hunting. Don't own a car. Still don't own a car. No, you don't own any vehicle. I don't own any vehicle. So how do you get out hunting when you don't own a vehicle? You make a lot of friends fast. <laughs> right. Yep. <laughs> so talk about that maybe a little bit because uh, in terms of, of the community, to me, um, with new hunters, I, I, I think the importance of the community that surrounds an individual new hunter is important. And what I mean is not one person, but multiple people, like you just said, of, of, uh, of a lot of people. So, you know, Alex, you talked about, um, you know, about Sam being a, it sounds like, was Sam a mentor? Sam is absolutely a mentor. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I mean, he did a lot of yelling at me when we were fishing, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, I think, yeah, that mentorship, it's, it's key, you know, especially being an adult, you yeah. know, and, and trying to learn something on your own and really just realizing that there is a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of knowledge, um, that a lot of people have and, and really, um, having friends that were open to sharing that and, and mentors that were open to sharing that, um, that's really something, you know, as, someone that's learning is really important as well to have those people that are willing to share those types of things with you because yeah i mean there's always like the secret spot or i'm taking you to this spot so you can't don't Don't post this on instagram you know (laughs) don't geotag the location right exactly (laughs) yeah i've seen some people do that oh man they'd be like got my deer and they actually put the location like place or a mountain and i was like why that's a small mountain. Thanks for sharing. There was a there was a, there was a tech company years ago. I remember came to me and presented their their new app, and it was a fishing app, and it was the whole social side of things. And their big focus was you can tag right where you got that fish, take a picture of it, talk about the whole experience. And I said, you do realize you're basically trying to get them to do the opposite of what, oh. <laughs> what people are doing. It's like no, that's my private spot now. I really nailed them there. Um, so Jenny, you, um, 
Talk, talk a little bit about, I guess, getting a lot of friends. Did you have Did you have one primary mentor? Were there multiple people? How did you find? How did you connect in? Yeah, for sure. I think, kind of going off what Alex said, there mentorship is so important. Whether it's in your career, hunting, personal life, it's great. I firmly believe we all should have mentors, and that's the first advice I would give to anybody getting out into hunting. Now, my first year, I actually made friends with all rookie hunters. So it was all people just so eager to get out as much as I was. And we spent a year bumming around. We were not so successful. And so this is year two, and I'm coming back with a better game plan. And I'm actually going to go out with some seasoned people this year, because last year I was hard-headed and I wanted to do this on my own and, and get all the credit for it. But uh, it was really humbling. I, was, I spent most of my season chasing uh, blacktail deer. Uh, they are like ghosts. They're called the ghost of the forest. And we have a very dense, dense forest where I'm from. And I spent three months without seeing a single animal until the last bit of the season. I finally got 10 yards in front of a doe and spooked her. And I was like, well, that made, at least I saw an animal. Now, are you, were you stand hunting or are you spot and stock? What are you doing? Uh, spot and stock. Okay. And uh, when I finally saw a doe, it was on an island somewhere, archery season. Last, so it was, it was the last week of hunting season for deer. And so by, the, by then, they were all spooked out. So it was only the super ninja ones left. So I was pretty proud that I saw one. Um, but yes, circling back to mentorship there, so important. Go out with somebody that knows what they're doing. Um, it'll save you so much time and frustration, and it's much quicker. So, And you know what? Communities like the BHA, that's why That's why they're, they're thriving. That's why we've grown so much, is that mentorship, that fellowship, and that community that we build, and to kind of lift each other up, and yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So what, given how recent your first hunt was, um, what, what is it, either w- with that specific event, with chasing blacktail or something else, what is, what is it about hunting that you are enjoying the most right now? <laughs> I'm laughing because I'm as city as city gets. Uh, I, I, that's why I don't even own a car, because I live downtown. It takes me eight minutes to walk to work, and... Uh, I love all the city things, you know, athleisure wear, I do my yoga, buy overpriced produce. (laughs) So my friends were quite shocked when I got into hunting and I actually stuck to it because they're like, what, Jenny in the woods, are you going to be okay? Um, But I can't explain it. Like it's awoken a, a, a primal instinct from its deep slumber almost. And all of a sudden, you put me in the woods, and I just knew how to do things. Like, I'm like a ninja status out there. They're like, you did what, 10 days? A backpack hunt? You didn't change your underwear all 10 days? So I was like, yeah, merino wool. So worth the $30. <laughs> and it didn't bother me at all. Like, I, I loved every second of it. I love not showering. I love just being dirty. I love drinking from the lake. Don't do that, everybody. And... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I I cannot explain my addiction uh, to the mountains in BC. Like, it's literally a drug I can't get enough of. Well, and that's the thing. You both live 
in probably some of the most beautiful country in the entire world. Mm -hmm. And so what would you, I mean, relative to that, do you think for somebody who is living in in an area that that maybe they don't feel it has that same just grandiose uh, type of type of, of places to go. Um, would you would you be as addicted to it? Do you think if 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 you weren't in that that amazing wilderness? I mean, I think a lot plays into that. You know, like your your sh- like like where you are socially, even you know, like if your friends are all out and none of them do it, it's I feel like it would be harder for me to. Um, appreciate something like that. I mean, coming from Maryland, um, also being close to the city, I felt like that really wasn't a concept that my friends were taking advantage of or really even talking about or doing. Um, And so I feel like your environment, right, like your social environment is a huge part of that. Um, So finding those people that are interested, you know, making friends with those types of people, I I feel like is a great way to kind of launch an interest um, if you're not in a yeah, not in, in an advantageous place to go hunting or fishing, you know. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, we were just saying, you know, with hunters, if you want it, go get it. And that's because I, I talked to a lot of hunters that live in Dakota and things like that. They don't have any mountains. It's all farmland. But they dream. They dream of going to places like hunting in Oregon and B.C. and New Zealand. And they're saving their dollars to go get it. So I think it is a social aspect. And also, you don't have to be there to be addicted to it. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. You definitely don't need to be, yeah. Yeah, no, totally. I, so I did my first out west hunt last year. I've hunted my entire life, but always in, for the most part, I mean, I've gotten fishing in a lot of different areas, but for, for the most part, my hunting has been Midwest, you know, typical whitetail, duck hunting, goose hunting, upland, pheasant, etc. And um, so I'm still working on 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 planning my elk, first elk hunt. There you I'm go. Doing. Yeah, which is and that that is I think something about it for for you to be brand new to it. It's like even even for somebody somebody that does it their entire life, there's always something new that you can learn, something that you can be challenged with. And that's what I think is really cool about it, especially if you're sort of a generalist. I'm a generalist. It's like I'm not, you know, some people go hardcore into fly fishing, they go hardcore into bass fishing or elk hunting, whitetail, etc. And I think I just, I've got too many interests in just (laughs) doing different things throughout the year. Same. Yeah, yeah. Have you, Jenny, have you done fishing yet? Is that... I, my extent of fishing has been sitting on a boat and trailing a rod behind me. Yeah. I did catch my first, I think it was a trout. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Did you eat it or not? I actually was so excited. I like anchored the boat right away and ran in and gutted it and cooked it. (laughs) Like all within 15 minutes. (laughs) I was on a lake and like the cabin I staying was staying at was right beside it and i was so excited i couldn't wait i'm like let's go inside now now so yeah i was like i was that way as a kid with a morel mushroom i don't know if you guys forage at all but i saw my first morel and my and i asked my dad i was mowing the lawn it was underneath this pine tree in our backyard i said what is that he said that's oh he said come on Mm -hmm. and follow me we cut it and just went right in and just sauteed it up in the pan with butter i mean i can still taste it it was was 40, Mm. 40 years ago and uh, so I think that's that's so cool. I love that. I'm just like, let's go in right now and eat it. Oh yeah, I'm all. If I always say I'm not going to hike over a hill unless there's some food <laughs> over there. You are about. You are like you said more than the average person. All about the food, huh? 
Oh, guys, you have no idea. When I get up in the morning before my toes touch the ground, I'm thinking what I'm going to eat, who I'm going to eat with, you know, what am I going to cook later that night? <laughs> and then I get up. And, and then you get up. <laughs> so, Alex, uh, fishing. You you grew up fishing, right? Or, yeah, yeah, yep, to an yeah. extent. I mean, um, so I first kind of started out in a city scene, and we had a public pond, and we didn't have rods or reels, and so we actually used... <laughs> A string that we would find, um, hooks that we would buy, and Cheetos, and we would catch little sunfish. Um, and I mean, we would just release them. I mean, they were kind of, I don't know. I mean, we didn't know what to do with yeah. them, and so we would just release them. And um, fast forward, yeah, I, I fly fish a lot. I try and fly fish actually like once a day because um, oh, wow. I, I live in an advantageous <laughs> place. I have three rivers flowing in this town that I live in, oh, and in the summertime, you know, the sun doesn't go down till ten thirty. And it's just, it's a great place to be. And um, again, with the mentorship stuff, I've had two great mentors in the fly fishing realm as well, Sawyer and Trey. They took the time to take me out and have fun and be my friend. And then also really just show me that not catching a fish is can be just as fun as catching a fish. Like standing in the river, appreciating what's around you and um, in your surroundings and just enjoying one another is, yeah. I mean, and so I felt like my my I guess my philosophy around fishing has really grown from those mentorships and and then really the friendships that I have accrued through that and yeah so fishing is a big part of my life right now and I'm really excited to get back to Montana and <laughs> it's high water right now but you know I'm, I'm hoping sooner or later it'll all the snow will melt and the waters will calm down and the fishing will, will start getting good but I went out for the first time this season two weeks ago yeah I went out to a lake and did some fishing and it was yeah. fun. I was on a clacka. I was not on a clacka. Sorry, I was on a fly craft. It was a small little thing with with a friend of mine. Yeah. It, was, it was nice. Yeah. So hold on. I just want to circle back to two things. Number one, Cheetos. Explain yourself. <laughs> Cheetos. I like Cheetos, and if I like Cheetos, maybe the fish like Cheetos, right? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I was like, am I, I missing I something know. here? Okay. Yeah, okay. they're orange. Yeah, they're orange. I mean, okay. honestly, we had no idea. And so we would just put things on hooks and Cheetos always worked. And what would happen is the, the it would, they would hit the water and the grease would kind of like separate in the sure. water. And you'd kind of see it like breaking down and these fish would just come right up and take it, you know? I mean, we, we don't know what's made with Cheetos. We <laughs> might be eating fish food. When I grew up in, in, in uh, Minnesota fishing trout, there's these stocked put-and-take lakes where, you know, they're just stocked for, for fishing with rainbows. And we'd fish them with corn and marshmallow. So you would, you'd get these little circle hooks, little, like it's about a size 8, maybe 8, size 10. And then you put just uh, one little kernel of corn and one marshmallow on it. And what would happen is the, 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 the corn would be the attractive thing, but the mushroom worked or I'm sorry, the marshmallow worked as a great float. So you'd fish off the bottom, and the and the marshmallow would float it up. You'd you'd be up about three feet uh, off of the bottom, so it'd be perfect. So you guys are doing like the hopper dropper. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Oh uh, yeah, you you should if you haven't gone fly fishing yet, Jane. You should you should the springs. I mean, up up where you're at, there's got to be some phenomenal opportunities. Sure. That brings me to my second point. Is Alex? I'm gonna f- visit you in Come Montana. By. Yeah. Three lakes beside rivers. Rivers, lakes. right, Great. right in town. Yeah, the access is, is really unreal. So I uh, I got to fish three years ago, four years ago after a rendezvous um, 
went out and uh, on the Clark Fork, around the Clark Fork, I think, and uh, got to go after a West Slope cutthroat for the first time. Yeah, and, uh, it was fun. It was a great uh, Greg Munther. I don't know if you've met Greg. Yes, took me, legend. Took me out. Yeah, exactly. He's I know. A legend. He took uh, Lucas Leaf and I out, and when I told people after that Greg took us out, locals were like. I've asked Greg to take me out for years, and he's never taken me out. So I, I, we had no idea how, how blessed we were to go out with him. Great guy. I'm just going to tell you Greg Munther's story just because this is funny. I was, I was fishing on the Clark Fork, and I turn around, and I run into Greg Munther in the woods. I'm on my way back to my car, and he's like, oh, hey, I know you from BHA. And I was like, hey, I know you too. And I was like, wow, I saw Greg Munther out in the woods. <laughs> Should I document this? <laughs> That is awesome. You know, it's you know back to what you said a few minutes ago too, Alex. Um, to me, like fly fishing more so than than some other types of fishing is like you like you described it. You can go out for the day, not see a fish, not have a rise or anything, and it's the most wonderful day. There's just something about that experience of going out on streams or lakes. Working on your casting, changing out the flies, trying some different techniques, but it's just it's very calming. It's such a such a great thing. So like you said, doing trying to do it every day, man, that is that's no wonder you're such a chill guy. <laughs> it's like a self care thing, you know? Yeah. 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 I, I feel like it's one of those things where um as much as I love catching the fish, I also, you know, gotta love yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So Jenny, tell us a little bit about Chasing Food Club. For sure. Um, when I started hunting, I was, I was just meeting such great people. And I just wanted a place to share all their stories. And that's how Chasing Food Club got started. Because I was like, people need to know about these people. So just like you, Mark, it isn't really a platform about myself and hunting. It's a platform just to share all these amazing people that hunt, forage, and protect our wild lands and and their personal stories because it's just so cool. Everyone's such a badass in this industry and their stories just need to be heard. Um, but I feel like the idea has been, I feel like every step I've taken has kind of led me to this point. I remember being nine and I grew up Christian. So at nine, I remember praying, go, what, sh- what should I do with my life? You know, what, what, what was I meant to do? How was I supposed to help others? And and then at 19, I remember I sold books door to door, and they were long days in the hot, uh, it's very hot in the summer, and I would walk door to door knocking, and during this time, I had a lot of time to think <laughs> to myself, and it just hit me, you know, I'm, I was put in this world to serve people through food. It's just, I, that thought kept coming to me, and I thought it meant I was going to work in a restaurant, maybe start a food charity. Like, I had no idea. And I kind of put that thought away. And now I'm, well, I would like to make a significant say another 10 years later, but it's not quite a few, a few years off. I, uh, when I got into hunting, something just felt extremely natural about it. And then the idea of chasing food club came. And I was like, this is what I was meant to do. This is it. This is serving others through food. There we go. And uh, I, I do hope to eventually turn Chasing Food Club from this platform into almost a charity to try to put the money back into wildlife conservation somehow. Um, don't quite know yet. It's getting there, um, but we'll see. 
So that was that Look was it in that. a nutshell. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Oh my gosh, that's a great. That's a great backstory, and it's a it's a wonderful website you got, and and I love the the position you've taken on your philosophy behind it and the origins of it is really really cool. Thank you. Thank you. So, what we were actually coming together to talk about today is diversity and inclusion in the outdoors. So Jenny, you're Vietnamese Canadian. Alex, Korean American, first generation, right? Mm-hmm. So, in in your job now is focused on uh, on these issues. So, what what would the two of you say in terms of is there is there a challenge? I guess do you, do you, as you think about you both of you coming in to hunting as adults are there challenges around diversity and inclusion today i'm going to get let alex speak towards this because he's so well versed in it and uh yeah okay i'm gonna piggyback you off off of you afterwards all right um yeah i would say there are challenges i mean i also feel like um diversity and inclusion is it's not it's it's a broad term um, and I, I definitely wanted to find that, you know, and, and diversity and inclusion in, in, in the conservation industry, especially, um, you know, there's the socioeconomic diversity, right? There's the low income rural communities that are utilizing public lands and waters that may not financially be able to um, partake in a lot of things because of their financial status. And then there's the diversity in, um, in gender and then diversity also in um, ethnicities, and so there's all these different, you know, parts that kind of come together that make diversity and inclusion um, a, a whole topic. And I think that there are a lot of challenges when it comes to, you know, people in urban areas, people in big cities, um, not having access to get out into the wilderness or, you know, driving. They have to go a far ways, and so that can be a challenge, right? Like diversifying, because so for me, I live in in Montana, and so. The community that I live around, we have all of these places right at our doorstep. And so the challenge of getting outside can be a financial thing where even though it's in my backyard, even though I walk past the Clark Fork every day, I can't go fishing, you know? And so those are some of the financial um, diversity issues that might happen where I might be a, a person of color and I live in a really rural area and no one wants to teach me, you know, and that's another challenge. The, the community may not accept me because of where I live, you know, and then there's the historical challenges as well um, that play in as well, like for the indigenous communities or for, for people of color and the history, um, you know, 70 years ago for um, a colored person to go into the woods as opposed to now, you know, there's a lot of generational um, um, trauma that's happened and so that's something that you know particularly in these days and ages it's hard it's it's not recognized as much and so I think that it's important to recognize that the challenges that people do face um, when it comes to diversity equity and inclusion can be very broad and it can be very different for each and every person and so I think yeah there are definitely challenges out there but I think that there is great movement moving forward you know and I think that it's nature is such a it's it's such a connecting piece and so i think that although there are a lot of challenges there are a lot of great progressive positive ways to move forward 
um, and really connect on a level to create healing and to create opportunities and to create new um, perspectives around conservation and around hunting and fishing and around finding your own food, you know? And so, yeah. I think it's, I think it's so true in Mm -hmm. terms of nature being a place. It's, it's the great equalizer scenario of, of we all go out there in the, in the same way with the same limitations, the same opportunities. And I also like how you, define it not just in ethnicity but it is or gender you know that are what we would generally think of when we think about diversity and, and, and inclusion but other factors about proximity to to wild places socioeconomic uh, factors things like that which i think are all the the barriers to people getting into into hunting relative to that i mean so you know I, I think there are f- very few things that have more barriers than introducing somebody to hunting. Uh, if you think of the cultural factors, you think of the, f- the issues related to firearms, you think of uh, the cost, things like that. Um, Jenny, are there any things for you from the standpoint of, of you see from a uh, diversity of the, all those factors like Alex just described that, that come to mind as, as some of the biggest challenges that we really need to, to address and, and to try to try to overcome to get more people outside. For sure. I'm, there's, sorry, there's, there's just a kind of, sorry, I have so many points swimming in my head. I'm like, okay, focus on one, Jenny. Um, I, I, I love how Alex bought up things like income and money because that was a huge barrier. I, When I started hunting, I actually left my corporate job and said, you know, I don't want to work sitting in an office chair anymore. I want to do what I love. So I actually went to go work at a restaurant. Lasted about three months because I realized hunting is so expensive. And if you don't have mentors telling you, hey, don't... Be. It can be. There you go. Thank you for correcting me (laughs) because I didn't have mentors telling me, okay, don't prioritize this. Don't do this. Buy this first. Spend less on this. Spend more on this. And if you don't have that mentorship, things will add up. Yeah. And and you unfortunately you do need money to get out there, especially when you live in a city and the closest thing to good hunting is four hours away. Um, there are challenges. So I'm so glad you brought that up and just being more open about it and talking about it and going, hey, I need help or can I borrow this um, is okay. It's totally okay. And you don't need to go out there with the most badass boots and guns and, you, and, and just having somebody constantly remind me it's okay. Just work with what you have. And I really needed to hear that. So, uh, it's, so it's so true. I think the, um, the outdoor industry can be as much of a, of a, a hurdle and a challenge as it is an enabler in so many ways because all the messaging it's just like anything with consumerism nowadays it's like you need more better best um you know from clothing standpoint like you talked about merino i love <laughs> merino it is it is my favorite material but my gosh it is expensive and and so you know like that as as an example of of somebody new to hunting a lot of times they'll say don't worry about that right now just wear your cotton for, if it's a nice day <laughs> um and and you'll get there eventually but just you know a good pair of boots and if you need to wear blaze orange a cheap vest and and we'll get we'll we'll get you a gun that you can use of somebody's and just to keep it simple and get out there and just 
get that out get that little little experience in where where you you can understand oh i get i get this idea of what this hunting thing is about it's not so exotic and far off now i can i can see it within reach so i got a question to ask both of you guys um in so we're all in media of some sort and so i feel like media is also a challenge um and, and it definitely poses challenges for people, right? If we go on Instagram right now and you search uh, fly fishing, you know, um, the top three are probably going to be somewhere around Patagonia, Winston Rods, right? Like like these things where if you aren't interested in fly fishing and you just now get into it and then you look on the website and you're like, whoa, that's my month's <laughs> rent for a rod. And then that's my next month's rent for the reel. And then, you know, and then it's like, and that's, you know, that's my, that's like my mortgage for the waiters. It's, you know, and, and so you're considering all of these things and, and for someone that's just getting themselves introduced, whether that's your self-interest and you just get on the internet and you're like, I want to go hunting or I want to go fishing. Right. And so we're all using these platforms as a source of information. And so we look on Instagram and the first thing we see, even for hunting, you know, you, you see all of these expensive brands. Right. And so mm-hmm. we, we forget that you know at, with, with history that those things weren't around mm-hmm. um and that man people were deer hunting back then and they were like i don't know wearing t-shirts jeans and sneakers you know and so mm-hmm. wh- how did it get to this point where <laughs> it's becoming unaffordable yeah. on a social standard yeah. not not just and because i feel like there are different options like you guys were saying to be um to do hunting affordably you know and but those options aren't necessarily being, you know, pushed out to the to the mainstream. It's mainly just like buy this, you know, like what you're saying. We want the best. We want, you know, we want things that are even better than what we have. And so, it's like that's another challenge. And and I wanted to ask you guys, you know, what do you guys think about media's play in creating those challenges for people getting outside? It's absolutely um, a challenge, even along the lines of. T- uh I won't even go there right now, but in terms of media as a distraction and social media as a distraction from getting outside, I use it as the platform here to as as a way to get the message out. But by the same token, it's part of the part of the problem. Um, same thing with the gear. You know, when when I was a kid, duck hunting, all of our clothing was hand me down old cotton, cotton. Uh, um, vests or and, and and jackets and pants not waterproof at all we would literally take garbage bags and cut holes in them and, and put them under the jacket and that was our rain gear that was the gore-tex and we still had a great time we we froze you know a lot of times we got r- really cold but i mean it's just an example like you said of where we've come now to today and and, and the thing is is what i would say is is you know, hey, if somebody has the resources to go out and buy the best waterproof barrier merino wool, um, the newest synthetic light mountain rifle, etc., great, have at it. You know, some people are gadget freaks and and they love doing that. And they have if they have the ability to do that financially, great, go do that. But let's not promote it in a way that it, it appears to be as a requirement exactly to your point and i think it gets into just um 
yeah, just human nature in terms in terms of that of, of of we need to make sure people don't feel sheepish about not having the newest and the best. You yeah, because branding is yeah. is absolutely the brands out there right now. You know, we we all wear them, I'm sure, and, and you know, it's just got to be careful. Yeah. For sure. Yeah, I think, and the best way to kind of tackle that is just of talking about it, and and and. Like, I know when I go out in something that's not traditional, I always talk about it. I go, hey, I just used my backpacker's backpack to go pack out meat. And guess what? It worked great. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, it's hyper-specialized gear. Like, yeah. It, which is just like, I, I'm with you. I, all I've got is I've got old backpacker packs. And, and it isn't even a, a great brand, very modest brand. Yeah. And um, and that was what I had out for out west for packing last year, and and I also use it till I, I yeah. can't use it anymore till the, the buckles and break. Yeah. So we so social media can be a distraction, but we can also share a more positive message by just talking about it. Yeah. And yeah. talking about these my my Tiva sandals I used to river cross. Like, don't need fancy gaiters. Couldn't afford anything, so I just rolled up my pants and put on my sandals and crossed the stream for nineteen ninety nine. <laughs> Right, exactly. You know, yeah. and, no, and just totally. sharing little tips like that and just having yeah. positive conversation around things like that. So yeah. I went to Alaska salmon fishing in 1996 with my brother and a buddy of his. And I and I got I was sort of pissed at, at, at my brother's buddy because he came with the most basic of gear. It's cheap. Like, so we're going, we're going after king salmon. He caught a 50-pound king salmon on this... Like 1999 combo uh, spinning rod. <laughs> his shoes were deck shoes. His his ring gear was a plastic poncho, like the little one you get like at a disposable at a mm-hmm. at a at a checkout of a drugstore. Um, and so um, you can do it. You can do it. You might not be comfortable, but uh, yeah, I think uh, I think like you said, Jenny, you just need to talk about yeah. it. Yeah, you know, yeah. that's the, that is the key. Definitely, and ask. You know, like I I am I'm in such a grateful situation where I am I'm around um, great hunters and you know and, and and fishermen and women and and uh, when I when I was first getting ready to go do my first archery hunt, I asked Ty Stubblefield. I said, Hey, man, what do you wear? And he looked at me and he goes, well, what you're wearing right now. And I was like, I <laughs> hey, looked at myself. Hey, he gave that response to me once, I too. was like, uh, uh, snow boots and some jeans and a flannel. And he's like, yep. Exactly. And I was like, okay, yeah, cool. You know, and so, but but if I hadn't asked, I wouldn't have known. And, and I asked because I thought there was this thing where, man, if I'm going to stand out there, you know, or if I'm going to go around walking in the woods and it might rain on me, I need, to, I need this rain gear. I need... I need um, I need to be so camoed out that these animals can't even see me, right? And I might not even be able to see myself, right? You right, know? right. But but Ty was like, no, I just wear a red flannel, man. And I'm like, <laughs> all right, yeah, <laughs> absolutely, yeah, that's perfect. Actually, well, on my caribou hunt, I was glassing, and on this hilltop, I saw this bright orange rain poncho, like the plastic kind, like the type that your parents used to send you off to elementary school with so you didn't get soaked yeah that's what this guy took to alaska same kind 99 yeah. cents or something like that. and I, I look i'm like what who, what is that and i realized it's somebody in a bright orange rain poncho and then right beside him was a buddy in blue flannel flannel and jeans and this is a fly-in backpack hunt so i'm like okay i, I didn't need any of this right i looked down at my stuff and i was like <laughs> and it was so humbling to see yeah and they were successful. They they yeah. packed up before we did, yeah. in blue jeans and a bright orange mm-hmm. poncho. And I was right. like, 
I was like, we need to share more stories like this because mm-hmm. this is this is epic. Totally, totally, and that's where it's it's like, hey, the, the, these great materials can make a difference in terms of your comfort, uh, and that is that is maybe I guess the flip side of it of of from a from a hunter recruitment standpoint, the value of that gear is that it makes the experience. If if you've got inclement weather, if it's cold, that gear can be make it make the difference on a really enjoyable day from one that where you're like you're 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 pretty miserable yeah i wonder if people were wondering if you were like getting ready for wrestling camp after your duck duck hunt there mark (laughs) (laughs) they're like oh (laughs) this kid's got trash bags and sweaters on (laughs) he must be cutting weight oh man we we had i mean and it was like rubber waders back then and none of them ever uh, were were watertight. They all leaked, and so you'd you'd be you'd be going out to pick up blocks, you know, at the end of the day, and your 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 legs would be soaked. Um, so yeah, I mean, it it could be uncomfortable, but I I mean, there, there's value to it, and I think, like you said, this is the conversation to be had, which is, hey, you know what, you can that's it's great to do that, and that's something that you might choose that you want to buy, but you don't have to, right, right. So. Um, but I just want to clarify, once we all get into it, we want the best gear. Totally. And that's we're all, yeah. <laughs> we're all, Absolutely. We're all guilty of that. And that's, yeah. my, that's my message to the manufacturers is don't worry about it. Once if once we get people in, they'll they'll want it. They'll oh, go yeah. by. Look at I mean, all of us, we're talking about how you don't need it, but I'm sure we all have right. crazy amounts of gear that's really expensive because you will just naturally want to do it. But then, then you're then you've made a, a, a conscious decision that this is something I'm going to invest in, you know, and it's part of my life. Yes, Absolutely. I've saved up three months for my new backpack that actually got shipped to this hotel to avoid Canadian border taxes, <laughs> nice. and I am stoked to get out with that backpack. <laughs> very nice. Very nothing nice. wrong with my backers hiking backpack, by the way. Yeah, Still yeah. has not broken down. Yeah. Carried a hind leg and loose meat in there, but I just wanted the <laughs> I wanted the good stuff. <laughs> I'm guilty. <laughs> last year when I was out in Wyoming for the antelope hunt, I had all merino and all ultralight of uh, one of our favorite brands, First Light, and I spent a lot of money on it. And I will say the merino wool, the chama hooded hoodie, it was the one day it was really hot, okay? And I, we were belly crawling like a thousand yards to try to sneak up on these, on these uh, antelope. And... I took that hoodie and it was. I'm sweating because it's so hot. And counterintuitive, I put the hood up on this on this piece of clothing, and it instantly took the temperature down significantly because it was it was like a it was like a, a sun shield. So like in that situation right there, it was it was a nice comfortable situation that it turned into having the right gear at the right time. Hmm. Well, circling, yeah. Yeah, I just turned. This is totally turning into a gear talk, and this yeah. is this is a dangerous path because we. I know the three of us. Nothing hunters love more than to talk about gear. Right. <laughs> so. Exactly. So let's 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 talk gear, but a new new piece of it. Um, guns as new hunters has that been an issue for either you yourself thinking about it or your friends wondering about that given where we are societally with with the gun issue nowadays i mean i'd say that there are definitely social challenges you know um, living in montana i would i went into a bob wards and i was like hey i want to see this rifle and the guy was like you ever seen one of these before and i was like i have and he's like all right 
well, I want to stand next to you and show you how to do this. And I was like, well, I know what's going on here. I've got uh, a lot of experience. And he was like, he was like, no, 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 no. And, and right there, I just felt that, you know, I felt that adversity. It was, it was a challenge, right? It was, it was something that I felt like, man, I am just another human being. Why does it matter? You know? And, and then he was like, he was like, I didn't like, I don't do you get like, does, do you guys hunt? And I was like, what do you mean? Do you guys hunt? And I was like, do you mean like, do Asian people handle weapons ever? Yes, we do. Um, you know, and, but, but that, but that happened. And, and I felt like, you know, there, there is a, a misconception about, um, colored people that, that, that maybe we never had a firearm, you know, in our presence before. Maybe we don't understand, but the thing is, is you can't judge a book by its cover right? It shouldn't matter what our gender is, what our color is, you know, what our socioeconomic status is. A firearm is like an object, you know, it's like you, you know, if you know how to use it, you know how to use it, right? It's like riding a bike, you know? And so I think that, yeah, I mean, it was very interesting. And and even now I, I, I definitely still kind of feel like, you know, that there is, I mean, I'm very comfortable with it now, but coming across those types of situations, I'm like, man, I, you know, like, yes, I know what I'm doing. And like, yes, I have my hunter safety and yes, I've gone through those courses and I, you know, and, and I, and I practice and I understand that the safety behind it. And, um, yeah, so there definitely have been some, some, some interesting personal experiences. For sure. I think I had a similar experience at a gun shop too. I walked in and I was like, do you, I don't remember it was sell something, something, something. And he was like, Mm-hmm. Kind of like gave me a look like, you don't belong here. What are you doing here? And then finally I was like, I, I hunt. And he was like, oh, okay. <laughs> but, but you know, like he, 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 you can just tell he was just so lost his own thoughts, just trying to make judgments, trying to piece things together. Right. Um, yeah. And I, I know if a, a male dude walked in here asking for the same thing he would have had a different response so here's here's the flip side of of that problem of um white dude walking in he was one of the new hunters in our program in minnesota and his mentor took him to biggest gun shop in in the area um it was this was a few years ago like the people are just lined up to to get guns like you literally took a number at the counter because there's so many people ahead of you he finally gets up there to the counter and the mentor, you know, in, in a very good way, is basically just going to be there to help and be a little bit of a safety net, but wants him, the, the, the new hunter, to, to really take take the lead and, and, and be you know, take the lead in the conversation. So he brings him up and he says uh, and he says uh, to the to the guy behind the counter, Hey, this is John. John's just learning how to hunt and he uh, has made the decision that he wants to buy a deer rifle. And so if you could help him with that, that would be great. And the guy behind the counter sees this, you know, sees this 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 20-something white male who he's probably thinking, well, how come it took you so long to get to this point? Um, you should have grown up doing it. I don't know what it, I don't know what he was thinking, but he literally looked at him and he said, so, what do you want? And and he didn't have a clue what he wanted. That's that's what this guy needed to do is say, okay, you're going deer hunting, huh? So do you know, you know, what kind? Of, have you heard of different calibers that might be of interest? What you know, what, what what's your feeling about 
shooting one of these guns? I mean, you know, asking those questions, but he didn't. And, and, and I think, like those illustrations you guys just gave in this one, are examples of, of one of the things, I think, from diversity, from how we embrace people within the, the hunting community, we need to improve and do a better job of, of, of really... You know, like we like to say, you know, respect the person where they're coming from. And I always say that the first thing you need to do is ask questions to understand where, where, what's their story and why are they interested in, in learning to hunt. And then you can tailor your conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I look at it as, as a business. I was really confused. I was like, I'm about to buy a firearm from you. Like, wouldn't you just want to sell me one and be excited to sell me one, you know, instead of looking like baffled and. And so I think that that's another thing is just like perspective of business, you know, it's like be a good business person, you know, sell it. Don't, don't, you know, you shouldn't, you, you know, the, the consumer shouldn't feel like it's like, going, you know, it would be like going to like a, a car dealer and the car dealer being like, Hey, I actually don't buy that. It's like, uh, you wish you shouldn't buy that, you know? And I was like, uh, what do you mean I shouldn't buy that? You know, <laughs> isn't this like what I want? You know, I'm pretty sure I came here to buy that, you know? And so. Yeah, it definitely has a has a has a reverse effect to a way as well. So yeah, 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 and culturally, like we're Asian, right? Like my parents didn't have firearms, you know. In fact, they're pretty against it, you know. And so culturally, I didn't grow up with that um, being an everyday thing for me in my youth. And so I was like, man, like I guess if it was, you know, maybe I I maybe it was even the way that I approached the situation, you know, could I have done something differently? Could I have, you know, approached it in, in a, in a different way? And, um, but then I realized we all have different backgrounds and we are all coming from different histories. And, you know, if your interest is in buying a hunting rifle, then educate yourself so that you can have those conversations at the stores, you know, and, and, and have a, have a mutual, you know, a good conversation about what you're about to buy. Jenny, you said you said when you were growing up in Vancouver, you would do an annual trip back to Vietnam, right, to hobby farm there. Yeah, that's what kept me grounded and uh, probably encouraged me to hunt. Really, is uh, being around animals. And if you want lunch, you chase the chicken down. If you want eggs, you know you you hunt down where the goose laid the eggs. So, did you on that hobby farm and not, not knowing? how that would work in Vietnam but or or in Vancouver were you exposed to guns at all and and I guess even now with your hunting now are you doing archery or are you doing are you hunting with a gun I I prefer to rifle hunt okay um and no I, I didn't have that exposure to guns at all my dad is actually American so he lives in Oakland California and he has a lot of guns and he was actually the one that um, made me more comfortable around them and when I told him I got into hunting he's like great about time you got a gun to protect yourself. I was like, okay, dad, this is not how that works. Um, (laughs) um, Yeah, yeah, my dad is so American, so American. Um, So that was, so I I wasn't exposed to guns growing up and I finally got comfortable around them when I got my hunter's safety and and, um, had realized how to handle one safely and being around my dad and he helped with that too, but where was I going with this? Uh, we talked about the hobby <laughs> farm in Vietnam, the chickens. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what, what? One thing we haven't touched on yet, I, mean, I guess, is, is relative to food in terms of, like, wild game. Um, so that's something, you know, you, you, you cook that fish up. Um, have you, have Jenny, for you, since you haven't killed 
big game yet, or you have? What's your What's your story you're going to be telling? Can you share this? Because this this will come out way after you do your storytelling event tomorrow. So yeah, me and Mark sh- just want to preview. Yeah, we'll, we'll preview exactly <laughs> for sure, for sure. So the the spring bear was kind of my first exposure. I was really just hiking around with my rifle and just trying to get comfortable with all my gear on my body in preparation uh, for this caribou hunt, which I would like to say is my official first hunt. Um, I didn't have the tag, but my friend did. Who two guys I met during uh, riding our hunter safety course, and it was pretty epic. So we were successful, and it was a ten-day backpack trip, fly-in in the middle of grizzly bear country, and the three of us were all first-time hunters. Wow! And we, uh, yep. Yeah. So that that's what I'm sharing. Um, and just and we all come from the three of us all actually come from such different backgrounds like i was a 20 something software salesperson we got a 42 year old startup developer all around techie and then you actually got a 30 something cannabis consultant and yes that's a real government job where i'm from <laughs> and we were all different age ranges all into hunting for the first time so i really i'm really excited and honored to have this opportunity to share this story because that just shows diversity it doesn't matter who you are, what age you're from, who you're connecting with. We got the most colorful bunch hiking up this hill, bumbling around like an idiot, and uh, we were successful. And so there really is no barriers, and it's all about doing what you love and doing it often as much as possible. So, yeah. That's awesome. So did you, when you were successful on that hunt, did you cook anything out in the uh, out when you were in the backcountry? So the two guys I was with, they were very grizzly bear scared, bear scared. So they refused to cook anything in fear. Uh, but actually, by the time we got to the butchering, I didn't have a hot meal for 48 hours. There was about 200 milliliters of water left. And I was so hungry, I actually cut off the loin and just ate it raw. <laughs> and it was so weird because the meat was still warm. And I just... I was like, this is kind of nice. It's like a tataki because it's still warm. But not from a pan. <laughs> but not from a pan. <laughs> it's because this animal's heart was just beating 20 minutes ago. <laughs> um, so that, that was my first experience with truly wild game that I was a part of harvesting. So that was really, really epic. Yeah. That's awesome. So do you, um, have you cooked... Uh, much of that uh, the caribou yourself did you get some of the meat or, or not yeah for sure so we just divided the meat three ways and i actually had to buy figure out how to fit a deep freeze in my city size apartment <laughs> which was successful Good for stand you. up Good go for stand you. that's a pro tip there go for stand up deep freezer okay. if you don't have space yeah, you're right right much better than <laughs> the standard yeah uh, yeah, and I guess food started this journey, all and and actually before we jumped on this podcast, me and Alex were just Alex, you were just talking about how you try to cook Korean food, and probably all my caribou has gone to Vietnamese food. Really, it's um, like like what's a, what's a what's an example of, of a great dish? Yeah, for sure. Actually, bef- also before we got on this podcast, me and Alex were just joking because he's probably more American than most Americans, and I'm more Canadian than most Canadians because we hunt, we fish. <laughs> right. 
We're, we, yeah, and we have we have no accents. Uh, but side note, we also are very in tune with our Asian side because we also discovered we both have rice bowl tattoos, Mark. Yeah. So that was <laughs> awesome. really hilarious. Uh, and so circling back to food, like I just, I love Vietnamese food. And um, so I've cooked everything from like... Uh, Wild turkey pho, 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 yes, pronouncing it. I China. never know how to pronounce that. <laughs> Traditionally, it's, it's pronounced pho, okay. but I'm so Canadian that sometimes I forget, and uh, I say pho, pho, and uh, my Vietnamese roommate gets very mad because he's like, don't forget about your heritage, pronounce it right. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, I love uh, So I'll cook pho. that, but with the caribou, uh, I do a lot of Vietnamese Traditionally, it's made of beef, so Vietnamese beef stew, um, actually four. So the BHA rendezvous last night, we had the field to feast dinner, and I cooked a Vietnamese dish, which, which I also do often with the caribou, but it was a lemongrass, five-spice sausage, kind of wrapped in call fat, then deep-fried, and served on a bed of a fresh salad of mint and basil, cilantro, and vermicelli noodles. Sounds great. Yeah, I actually, it's, so it's one of, so... There's, there's, there's. I noticed this huge trend, and Meat Eater was probably a, a part of it, and Hank Shaw of just having more fusion and Asian recipes out there with wild game. And I actually, last night, it just occurred to me, I would love to kind of start my own book of just stories of my heritage along with wild game Vietnamese recipes, because it's this is this is how I got started. Food, I love food. And um, yeah, but Alex, I'm kind of curious to hear what kind of Korean dishes you make. Yeah, with all this fish that you're catching, actually. Um, with fish, I do um, red red chili paste. I make stews. Um, it's really good fish Ooh. stews. Yeah, I never have made a fish stew. I don't think it's just you know culturally, you know, in in the Midwest, you know, it's a fish fry so often, etc. And I've always wanted to do stews just from the standpoint of whole fish and the aspect of what that does in terms of bringing all that whole that whole mm-hmm. fish flavor into right. the, into the broth. Yeah, yeah, the broth is is great. It tastes great. Um, red chili is is a huge Korean kind of staple. Um, ingredient in most dishes, um, whether that's stew or barbecue or whatever that might be. And yeah, so stew is really what I do with the fish. Um, and I, I really enjoy doing that. It's like carrots, potatoes, a little bit of soy sauce and you just boil it all in there and the flavor all gets out, you know, and you're in, and the great part about it is that you're utilizing the whole fish, right? We're not like, I mean, the guts are being taken out, but the head is being used, totally. you know, the tail, we leave the bones in. It's just, right in the pot and you let it boil and you pull it out and you put it on a plate and you pick at it until it's over and it's delicious and another thing i like doing is i like making duck dumplings Ooh, um, that's really good you're talking. yeah or duck curry um that's another great one curry is a great way to kind of infuse that asian different types of asian you know and yeah that's also really good. And what else have I done? Um, I like doing Korean barbecue. I'm sure people have heard about Korean barbecue. It's a simple concept, right? You get a grill and you sit around with your friends and you grill it on top and everyone's responsible for their own. And um, But that, that, that sauce base, um, Korean barbecue has, has, a, has a distinct sauce base. And it's, it's like sugar, soy sauce, a little bit of vinegar. And, um, and yeah, I mean, using deer and elk to do like bulgogi style stuff or, or Korean barbecue style food. And that's really good. Um, you can make like Philly cheesesteak, Korean 
you know, Korean with wild game. Yeah. Like you can do all of these things and, and, um, all with wild game and the flavors come out. And I think that it, you know, the overall experience is very special to, to mix my, my culture with, with wild game, with like this new culture that I've kind of picked up on. Right. Like I, I didn't hunt big game until I moved out here. And so now doing big game food and like mixing that with a culture of food that I grew up with, you know, and that I cherish and being able to kind of bring that together has been, I mean, that really to me is like almost full circle, you know, I think what would make it full circle is that I could get my mom to come out and make it for me. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe one day. I love the, 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 well, there we go again, that word diversity and recipes and things of that sort. Because frying was great. And uh, I remember the first time somebody gave me a deer organ to fry up. And I did it the traditional way that most hunters eat it. They dip it in some flour, dredge it in some flour and throw it in a pan with some butter. And you know what? It tasted horrible. <laughs> that is not a way, good way to eat liver. So I diced it up and, and kind of made like a Vietnamese gravy with cilantro and chilies and green onion. I'm like, this is so much better. So <laughs> nothing, nothing against pan frying though, Mark. I don't want to hit I'm not, I'm not against that because usually my rule is you fry it, I eat it. But um <laughs> But just having that diversity recipe to kind of cater to all palates. No, absolutely. You know, and, and it's funny. Uh, so Jamie Carlson, who's uh, got a column on Modern Carnivore, is on, on the podcast a lot. You know, he talks about how when he, he wrote some recipes over the last few years of, of uh, doing different things. I think it was with walleye and with venison also. And he would get, he would he's gotten some basically hate mail of, of these trolls out there saying, the only thing you should be doing with those is, is salt, pepper, and frying them. You know, just that simple, simple aspect. And it's like, no, no, man. And that's one way, and it can be a very good way, to your point. To your point. But my gosh, that's the thing. Bringing in all these flavors, I just, I want to go have a meal with you guys sometime and just experience that combination. It's so cool. Yeah, I look at it as an opportunity. You know, yeah. I look at things that I ate growing up, and I'm like, man, I, how can I replicate that? with this meat that I've harvested because I'm not going to the grocery store now. I need to do something with this, right? And I want to make something with this. And so how can I integrate those two things together? And yeah, it's it's an opportunity for me to kind of explore that and figure out like if I can hunt and feed myself and integrate my, my, my heritage, it's, you know, I, I, I feel like it's a wholesome meal, yeah. you know? Um, yeah. That's great. So, um, what would the two of you say to either somebody who feels that they are diverse or and different from a traditional hunter, or they feel like they're not being included, um, or flip that around to somebody who's part of the hunting fishing community today, and maybe what can they do to to be more inclusive? Is, any thoughts around that? Any one specific thing, you know, Alex? Um. I think that open-mindedness, you know, humanity, consider one another, you know, consider, yeah, compassion, empathy, consider, consider these things that, you know, I find really with, with hunters is their ethics, right? Hunting ethics, like use those hunting ethics that you have for game on your fellow humans. And like, I think that is a great step in moving forward. If you can, if you can apply those, those ethics to your, in the social realm, I mean, 
it, it's it's an unbelievable way to grow the conservation community and really build a positive environment for people you know and, and if it's for the new person that's coming in that's really interested and, and feels like there are these challenges you know i'd say you know take the step dive into it see where it takes you you know i mean a perceived fear is you don't know if that you know you don't know what the outcome of that is going to be and i think being brave and bold and taking a step and going out hunting or going out fishing and just trying it you know and try it for yourself is is really i think a, a big thing you know i feel like when it comes to diversity and, and inclusion if if there is issues of even getting out for yourself, you know, look look up those people, you know, that that you can find inspiration from, and 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 find those kind of um, outlets and motivate, you know, yourself and and find other folks to motivate you, and yeah, building that community is is a huge thing. Mm. Finding the community, I suppose, and finding a community can be really hard, you know. And so I I would say that this is my my BHA pitch, <laughs> you know, but but. <laughs> But, you know, background trainers and anglers, I work as the inclusion coordinator and it's a great, you know, there's a great community of hunters and fisher, fishermen and women and it's a great community to really just be like, yeah, I don't know what I'm doing. Do you want to take me next week? You know, it's like, I can, uh, I can drive, I can play music, you know, I'll sing Madonna for you. Like, what do you, what do you want? You know, I just want you to show me, you know? And so, yeah, I mean, I think being bold in the sense of open-mindedness on both ends you know mm -hmm. diversity and inclusion is not a one-sided effort it is mm -hmm. a community effort it is a you know it's it's something that everyone has to equally partake in and for it to work you know and for it to um grow conservation you know i think that the more voices and the more perspectives that we have the more delicious food we get right and then the more opportunities we get to create a bigger community and then on a on a, on a bigger scale we get to protect public lands and waters on a legislative level if we're able to include all of these different communities so that's that was my sorry i no i did i had to just plug that in there <laughs> that was great i love it and, and you're right on and and uh the backcountry hunters and anglers community is a great place to start, and, and I think is is a, I mean, with you being in that role that you're in for BHA is a perfect example of where the priorities are of this organization, where the values are, and that's why I've, you know, been a member, a board member for for years now, and, and have put a lot of my efforts in terms of of uh, of conservation behind this organization because i believe in it so much so i'm i'm right there with you man mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um i think kind of my message to those that are looking to get into hunting i think it's so important just to be genuinely curious and just ask questions ask because and that's really how you break the barrier because when people see how eager and how excited you are and how genuine you are towards this they're going to open up to you but you got to just show them that you want this and you're showing them that you're putting in the work you know i i read a lot of hunting forums there's some people that go on there and go hey i'm learning how to deer hunt what do i do i'm like wait okay at least show you've done the research show that this is what you want and say hey i'm looking at this area i've gone out a couple times by myself kind of lost notice there's no poop where am i looking where am i looking for food at least ask specific questions right, right. and and show that you've put in the work you're willing to put in the work and that's just so important uh, to really breaking through and earning the trust of people and getting that mentorship you need and in my message to the hunters in regards to this topic i'm going to get a little frou-frou here because i i just feel this wave coming because um i think i think the last couple of years there's been a huge push on just 
open-mindedness, spirituality, you know, that used to be very fluffy things to talk about. But then that huge break with Michael Pollan and Joe Rogan talking about psychedelics and getting in touch with yourself and self-care, this is great. And I feel like the next wave that's coming is just love and kindness. And that's frou-frou. A lot of people don't talk about those things. You know, they're considered, they're, they're feminine things to talk about. And I think we're at this point where we're about to talk about it because that's what we need to kind of build upon this community and break through all the challenges we're doing right now. It's just having, trying and trying to look things from both perspectives and just having the love and patience and kindness towards every person you meet. Uh, and uh, I think that's just so important because us hunters, like we're our own biggest roadblocks. We're the biggest segregation amongst ourselves of being successful as a community and getting that message out there. We like we have so many awesome things to share, but we just got to slow down a little bit and show a little bit more love and kindness. And yeah, yeah, uh, that's yeah. gonna break down a lot of barriers. Yeah, I'm with you. I think that's I think that's well said. And uh, you can be frou frou whenever you want on this podcast. Oh, I'm all about frou frou. I'm gonna throw. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I uh, I can't thank you guys enough for taking some time to sit down and talk about this and uh, appreciate it. It's been fun fun and learning about the journey that you both have been on and look forward to following you and and connecting with you and and uh and seeing where things go yeah i think we should all do a fishing trip soon i'm montana montana yeah let's do it come by please let's do it yeah and thank you mark and modern carnivore for for taking the time to you know have us come and talk and this conversation is really important and i'm very thankful and grateful that that you are um, approaching this and, and really talking about it and, and leading in that way to, to, you know, conversate about things that are not, you know, they are hard to talk about, you know, and right. so yep. I appreciate that. And, you know, I think that the greater, you know, listeners and community also appreciate it. And so, yeah, thank you. For okay. sure. Thank you for doing this for 10 years and spreading that message because it needs to be heard. Yeah. And thank you for having us on. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Modern Carnivore Podcast with Jenny Lai and Alex Kim. If you want to hear Jenny's full story that she shares at the 2019 Backcountry Hunters and Anglers Rendezvous that is sponsored by Cece Filson, feel free to go to modcarn.com and find episode 14 of the Modern Carnivore Podcast, and we'll put a link in the show notes. In addition, you can check out the Outdoor Feast podcast, where Todd Waldron sits down with David Chang of Brown Folks Fishing, another conversation on diversity in the outdoors. These are important topics, so we'd love to hear your thoughts, ideas, and reactions to them. And uh, be safe out there and take care. Thanks for listening to the Modern Carnivore Podcast. You can continue the journey by going to modcarn.com.